the house of the Lord to confess my sin. It's true, I've, I've sinned. This, this message, this is, this is really one of the big sins of preachers, people who, who travel around, and, and that is that this is not the first time this message has been preached by me. Actually, the first time this message was preached by me, it was preached uh, in Africa on, on the last Sunday before, uh, before my wife and I returned to the United States almost three years ago, and I preached the message in, in Spanish to help you understand that the role of a missionary is to adapt to a culture, to dive into a culture, and, and to reach people where they are, right? And the church culture in Equatorial Guinea when we were in Africa is very different than it is here in the U.S. or here in Oahu. So as an example, a typical African service will last about three hours. Um, when you lovingly give your offerings to the church, you would all, if you were in an African church, you would stand up and you would get in a conga line and you would dance around the church as you moved up to the front and dropped your offerings into the plate. And then the sermon was usually hour and a half or close to it. So the first time I preached this message, it was one hour and 15 minutes. So I know you're all stressed about that right now. That You have to remember, I said the job of a missionary is to adapt to the culture to which he finds himself, right? And I understand that an hour and 15 minute sermon won't fly very well. Um, but pray for me in that, in that capacity. Uh, but the first time that I delivered this message... It was one hour and 15 minutes. I know that because my beautiful wife, who's in the front row, was timing me like a good preacher's wife should do and, and, uh, and, and let me know uh, how long the sermon was. And the pastor who, who wanted to, after I preached, wanted to pray for, for my wife and I and our return to the United States. And he said, over this short time that we've had Mike and his wife here, We've learned to love Mike and his preaching and enjoy what they contribute to the church. Mike has always uh, said so much in such a short amount of time. And, and uh, uh, hopefully you'll find that I can also say much in a, in a or truly a short amount of time. So uh, let's, let me pray for us and then I'll get started. Father, thank you for uh, the book of Jonah. Father, I ask that um, you help us to see what it is you want us to see. Uh, Lord, help, uh, help us to, over the next few moments, to, to surrender our hearts to your will. Uh, Lord, uh, and please utilize uh, me as your, your sinful servant for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. So we all know the book of Jonah. This, this book is, hands down, the most overwritten about, over taught over preached about a book in all of the Bible if you were to, to get on your your phones now and uh, go to your Amazon app and you type in the book of Jonah uh, you'll see that there's book upon book and most of them are kids books but commentary upon commentary in the book of Jonah and it is just overdone and and far be it from Pastor Todd to bring a missionary to Oahu and and have the missionary not preach from the book of Jonah that's what missionaries do right but I'm going to take a, a slightly different spin on the book of Jonah. Uh, what you may have heard 
if you grew up in the church, I did not, but I, I've, I've uh, seen many of VBS where this has been done, is, is hearing the story of, of that wayward missionary Jonah. And, and all we need to do is be obedient like Jonah eventually was, and the Lord will do great things through us. That's, that's our understanding of Jonah, right? Is this wayward servant of the Lord, this missionary going to a foreign land, and uh, he didn't really want to go. The Lord tweaked his heart and, and everything went well. That's not this book at all. That's not this story at all. This is a this is a story. I'm going to give you the punchline right now. The whole sermon. If you don't hear anything else for the for the next few minutes, understand this book is not about Jonah. This book is about God. This is a book about God, written by God about God, so that His people could understand who He was better, and understand Him a little bit more. Yeah, the book's called Jonah, and Jonah is actually the only character other than God whose name we hear. But it doesn't have anything to do with Jonah. It has to do with us understanding the Lord and what the Lord wants of us and, and his control. And again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, give you the punchline before we go any further. That The second chapter, specifically verse 9, that's what this book is all about. Chapter 2, verse 9. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, this is Jonah speaking, I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. And here it is, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's it. Have a good day. You can all go home. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God is in control. So when, when we're thinking of ourselves as, as, as how we are involved in God's global evangelism, God's outreach to the lost, that's it. God is in control. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Ah, but see that Mike guy that's up there who we just met last week, he's one of them super missionaries. He's got it all down, seminary trained, and he learns languages like mad skills. One day when I become a a mature Christian, I'll be just like Mike, and maybe I can do that. Ask my wife, that's not the story. If salvation belongs to the Lord, God does not need to bring pastors and missionaries and evangelists in who have great skills and great ability. He needs people who have great trust in the Lord. So we're going to spend this time, it's going it's, it's to be a whirlwind. We're going to rip through the book of Jonah and we're going to talk about God being in control. We're going to see how this book is about God being in control. And salvation matters to the Lord. The lost matter to the Lord. And it doesn't matter what Jonah thinks or Jonah does because God's going to come out the victor in this book and in, and in the end. We all read, we've read Revelation, right? You know the end, we win, right? God's people win. Um, but there's a long path between then and now. So as we enter into the book, we see, uh, and I want to tell you, this book is, is often, even by modern day conservative reformed uh, theologian is considered uh, an allegory. It's considered fictional. And I'm going to say it's not. I'm going to say that, w- that we are not to look at that book this way. And, and we're, we're to look at this book as, as truth. We, we, we see this book, and, we, and oftentimes you'll see, we're going to talk about it in a second, that they, they put sackcloth on cows, which is a little weird. And there's a little worm, a cute little story of a worm in chapter 4. And you've got this fish, and a lot of people look at the, the thing of the fish as, well, that's kind of silly. 
a man can't survive inside of a fish for for three days, so this has got to be an allegory. God can't have meant this to be true. But I, I, I don't want to give away the farm yet, but the same God who was born of a virgin, who rose from the dead, who rose others from the dead, and who who, who, who takes your sins upon his shoulders so that you can enter into the kingdom of his father. That's the same Lord who put this man in a fish for three days. Big deal. He can breathe underwater for three days. Not a problem. And I, I do want to commend the church here, by the way. This is a, 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 this is a sticking point of mine. The kids, the kids bulletin that says Jonah and the big fish. That, that word fish is important because that's another thing that people, uh, the, the, the word in Hebrew is actually big sea monster, big, big, but, it's, but it's also used as big fish. Whale is another Hebrew word. But a lot of times today to make this story a little bit more palatable, I don't really understand this, we use the word whale instead of fish because we know whales are mammals, right? And they got air inside their gut. So maybe a guy could actually breathe inside of a whale for three days. But we all know that fish breathe by taking water into their system and pulling the oxygen out of the water. And when there's water there, a guy can't breathe in there. So we've got to change it to make it a whale so it's a little bit better story, easier to understand. So good on you for using fish here. That's, I like that one. So this is a great literary tale. This is studied outside of faith and Christianity at, because it is such a great literary work. Um, the book exists in uh, the, the story of Jonah exists in the Book of Mormon. It, it exists in the in the, uh, uh, the the Muslim Quran. It exists in uh, in the Jewish Torah. The story of Jonah exists throughout uh, uh, theology, but literarily, this book was written at kind of a highbrow level. Some say that it was so that the the story of Jonah could be understood by the lower forms of man, the, the, the poor, uneducated people, but because of all the great literary tools, and some of them we're going to explore, but we're not going to touch on even a fraction of them, it was meant so that people at a higher level could get enjoyment out of it as well. And so one of those literary tools is right here in the beginning, and that is that with, with, uh, chapter, I'm sorry, with, with chapter 1, verse 2, the very first word, arise, is spoken by God. So God speaks the first words of the book, and then at the end of chapter 4, God speaks the last, the last uh, words of the book, intended to show the gravitas of God, that God is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, he's the beginning and the end, and showing God's great power there. And God says uh, to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Now, I'm not going to give away the farm yet here, but you have to understand, you have to put it in context here. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Assyria, the sworn enemies of the Israelites. Jonah is a prophet of Israel. Jonah does not like the Assyrians, nor does Jonah's neighbors and his relatives and his friends. The Assyrians were bad folks. They weren't just strong and powerful politically and and, and in war. They were brutal. And they didn't, based on the age in the room, we'll keep it clean. Um, the Assyrians wanted to, to scare the daylights out of their opponents. They didn't want them around. They bred their opponents out so the survivors uh, 
were forced to have relations with the Assyrians. They, 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 they stacked skulls and, and splayed bodies in front of cities to, for people to walk by and say, I don't want to interact with the Assyrians if this is what it's going to be like. And the, they were brutal, brutal people. And so here, God says to Jonah, a prophet of Israel, I want you to go to Nineveh and th- this great city. In, in it, don't interpret it as large city. Interpret it as a great city. The Lord views it as a great city. Go to Nineveh, these great people, and preach to them. So the very first time we see the word down appears when Jonah goes down to the city of Joppa. And then he gets on a ship and he goes down into the belly of the ship. And we're going to see, we're, and hold that thought, but remember the word down. We'll come back to it in chapter 2. We're going to revisit the concept of down, another literary tool that's being used. He gets on a ship and he goes to Tarshish. We don't really know where Tarshish is today. Uh, the, the biggest thought is that it's probably in modern-day Portugal or Spain. But what you need to understand if, if where Jonah is and where God tells Jonah to go, Tarshish is in the opposite direction. Okay, this is the moral, moral equivalent of, of, of the church saying to Pastor Brandon, we want you to go to preach to those heathens in California and, and travel on a ship to get to the heathens in California. And his response is he gets on a ship and goes towards Japan. That's the equivalent here, is that he's going someplace way off in the other direction. So Jonah goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the belly of the ship. And then it says, the Lord sent a great wind. Yahweh sends a wind. Who controls the wind? Yahweh controls the wind. God controls the wind. Brings up a big storm, which God controls the storm. So God is controlling this, this, this story from the beginning. And this is a mariner ship. This is a ship that is meant for transport of goods and people. And the crew on this ship are experienced. They know the Mediterranean. They know the waves. They know the storms. And these guys are flipping out. They've never seen a storm like this. This is such a big storm that they're, they're, they're tossing their, their cargo overboard. That's how they make their money. They're basically saying, we're not going to make any money on this trip. We just want to survive. They toss their cargo overboard because they're trying to make the, the ship more buoyant so it bounces around in the waves as opposed to down in and getting hit by the waves. And Where's Jonah? Jonah's down in the ship and he's sleeping. He's not narcoleptic. He's just indifferent. He knows what's going on. He knows why this storm is here. He he knows who sent the storm and and who it's intended for. And the captain comes down. He says, you sleeper, what are you doing? Rise, get up. We're about to die here, pal. Get up top and pray like everyone else is praying to their God. And again, remember, these are mariners. These are people that have been all over the world. They are representing gods upon gods from countries upon countries that we've never heard of. And and Jonah finally goes up onto the deck, and he comes up to what you can 
imagine this is this cacophony of just bloodletting and wailing and dancing and praying and sacrificing to all these different gods. And finally, they decide they're, they're going to cast lots and determine uh, who, who caused this storm to come about. Casting lots, a modern-day equivalent of ca- uh, throwing dice, but it's through in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's very common inside and outside of, of the Christian faith, and followers of Yahweh do it, and, and followers of other gods do it. But the, the concept of it is, is, that, is that the gods will control the lots, the dice, and help us answer our questions, right? And the lots fall on who? Jonah. So it doesn't say it here, but who controls the lots? God. God is in control. God controls the wave, the waves and the wind and the ocean and the lots. And they they come to Jonah. Now all eyes are on Jonah. What is he? He's a prophet. His job is to get the word of the Lord the Lord out, right? And they come to him and they say, Jonah, what have you done? This is a great opportunity for the prophet of the Lord. Talk to us, Jonah. Why are you here? What's going on? This is this is like this is like uh, uh, Pastor Todd going into a into a, a small village and and they and they run up to him and and say, "We hear you're a Christian. Tell us about that Jesus guy." Well, they 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 say to Jonah, "Tell us what's gone on. Why are you here? What is it you've done?" And he has the opportunity, and he really doesn't take the opportunity to talk about God. He talks about himself. He says, I'm a Hebrew, which is a, a slur at the time. And, and yeah, my God is the one that, that sent this storm. And he, and he talks about where he's from and who he is, and he doesn't talk a whole lot about the Lord. He's not really focused on God right now. He's being pretty disobedient, so that's not at the forefront. They want to throw him overboard, but they just know they can't. Any God that can do a storm, cause a storm like this is definitely going to seek retribution. And so finally, Jonah says, you have to throw me overboard. If you want to survive, I'm the reason this is happening. So you, you've, you've got to, to, get, to get me overboard. So reluctantly, they do. They toss him overboard. What happens next? The storm subsides, and the mariners start to follow Yahweh. There's been some criticism of that. Are they truly followers of Yahweh? God says they are here in, in chapter 1. He says they, they, begin to, they begin to worship the Lord. Think about that. A prophet of Yahweh is on, the, on board of the ship. Nothing good happens for those following Yahweh. He's gone, and they start to follow the Lord. Why? Who controls their salvation? Jonah, the pastors, the missionaries, the evangelists, God. So then God sends a big fish and swallows up Jonah. So who sends the fish? God sends the big fish. And now we get, the punchline is given to us right away. It says, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Obviously, pointing forward to Jesus Christ, right? Who is also in the, in the, in the, in the belly
belly of the earth for three days and three nights. And, and we're pointing ahead to, to Christ, and we're seeing that salvation comes from outside of, 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 of the prophet of the Lord being inside the belly. And in the case of Christ, the belly of the earth. In the case of Jonah, the belly of the fish. So the, the, the story is given away. We know he's going to get out in three days and three nights. And I'd love to be there for the two days, 23 hours, and 10 minutes before chapter 2 starts. And just he, hear Jonah just in pain and anguish and, and his heart breaking to, as he turns back to the Lord. And so we get into chapter 2, and it, it, Jonah is recounting as he's falling into the ocean, he's, and, it, and it says at one point he goes down to the depths, right? So that's the third use of the word down. And that's a part of the, one of the literary schemes that's being used here. He goes down to Joppa, down to the belly of the fish, and then down to the bottom of the sea. And, and each time he's going down, he's separating himself from the Lord. He's going deeper and further down from the Lord, being separated from the Lord. It says ultimately he gets down to the root of the mountains, the base of the mountains at the bottoms of the sea, and the grasses, the seaweed are wrapped around his head. And then you save me, Lord. And he comes around, he had reached his depth. And how he begins to to resurface in his love for Yahweh. And he hits that pinnacle where he says, I'm going to do what I've promised. I'm going to worship you like I've promised. Because salvation is of the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord in chapter 2, verse 9. This is another literary tool that we see in chapter 1. You can really see, and it actually plays itself out in the number of words, in the verses, and the number of verses. And and we start in chapter 1, verse 1, and, and Jonah is up high in his relationship. But then as, as we go further through chapter 1, Jonah's relationship to the Lord and his heart towards the Lord is sinking down and down and down and down. And it creates a W, and it peaks. He, he gets closer and closer to the Lord at literally, by the number of Hebrew words, the middle of the book, chapter 2, verse 9. He's at this peak of his love for the Lord when he acknowledges salvation is of the Lord. I don't have anything to do with this. This isn't about me or where I want to go or the people I want to preach to. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But then don't worry. From that point forward, Lord uh, Jonah is separated again from the Lord and he goes down and down and down and down. Another literary tool that peaks here at 2.9. But then my favorite verse in this whole book comes out here at the end of chapter 2. And, and, and it says uh, that the Lord spoke to the fish. So God did this, right? And what's the fish? Just a dumb, obedient animal. He's just going to do what God tells him to do. He's, he's, he's not creative enough to do anything exciting and fun and new. And what happens God speaks to the fish. He says, okay, now it's time for for, uh, you to release Jonah, and you're going to do it in a specific way that matters to me. 
And, and you can envision what could have happened is this fish got close to the, the, the beach at the Mediterranean Sea and opened his mouth and Jonah swam out and waved goodbye to the fish and the fish's flipper waved goodbye or something fun like that. That's not what happened. And, and we could envision that maybe the fish swam up to the edge of the beach, opened his mouth, and Jonah just walked out. Would have been so nice. But Jonah, Jonah gets depart, de, de, deposited on the beach in the exact way that God tells the, the, the fish to do this. He vomits him out. Now, I had to ask my wife, who's a nurse, this. Um, have any of you, how this, what, what, what vomiting actually means, have anybody ever had a, a good time vomiting? It's, it's uh, joyous and fun, right? What, what's the purpose of, of vomiting? My wife, the nurse, says, the purpose of vomiting is for the body to expel from it that which offends it. Virus or poison or some bad food or something like that. So, so the obedient fish is expelling that which offends it from itself. And so Jonah plops back on the beach and we start the second half of the book. And, and it really picks up in the same place where the first half of the book started. Again, another literary tool with the exact same words adding a phrase where at, at, at the beginning of chapter three, he says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against, against it. Same words that he used in, in the beginning of chapter one, but he adds something. He says, preach to it the, the message that I tell you. Okay, that's not, don't think of that like the way I treated my daughter who's now 23, right? When she was eight and I said, go clean your room. And I come back an hour later and she didn't clean her room. And I said, go clean your room. And I come back an hour later and she didn't clean her room. And I stand there and I say, what did I tell you? This isn't God looking at Jonah as a petulant child. This is him understanding that we, the reader, are, are going to look at something that's about to happen. And unless we hear these words, preach the message to which I, God, tell you to preach. Because then what happens is Jonah takes what, from, from where we know Nineveh exists today and the closest edge of the Mediterranean Sea is about a 25-day walk, 25 to 30-day walk. Jonah spends about three and a half weeks walking across the desert, and he goes to Nineveh, which is a big city, and he preaches a message. And we know the result, but the, what is the message? The message is found in the middle of chapter 3. In verse 4, it says, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Yet Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Eight words in English, fewer in Hebrew. And what did God say at the beginning of chapter 3? Preach the message that I give you. An eight-word message. Okay, so let's again imagine you as a church decide that you're going to send Pastor Brandon over to California to preach to the heathens uh, in Southern California uh, where my wife and I will be tomorrow afternoon, and and uh, and Brandon, you you pray and you raise up funds and and you uh, care for Brandon's family while he's gone, and Brandon's gone, and and he comes back and he tells you tells you guys I everything went so well. I preached this great eight word message, 
And you'd be like, well, I want a refund. What do you mean, eight words? You spent, you, you preached an eight-word message? But if, if God says, preach the message which I give you, and Jonah preaches a pretty lame eight-word message, and the result is 120,000 people come to Yahweh. The largest conversion inside or outside the Bible in the history of the world comes from an eight-word message. Who controls that? God does. He didn't need Jonah or any other man to preach an eight-word message. The result is the king uh, uh, takes off his, his robes, which a king doesn't do. That doesn't happen unless the king is acknowledging that there is someone more, uh, more to be le- le- left, lifted up or prestiged than him. And he calls upon everyone to, uh, to fast and uh, to put sackcloth and ashes on themselves, which is just a way of, of lamenting, of acknowledging the grief of the past life, the welcoming in of the new. And they put it over the animals. This is kind of another kind of funny thing. But you have to remember, they don't have debit cards. They don't have checking accounts. Um, they don't have checkbooks or, or automatic withdrawals. Their wealth is their cattle. Their wealth is their mules. Their wealth is their horses. So by me covering my, uh, my cows with sackcloth and ashes, I'm acknowledging me and my family and everything we got is for Yahweh. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a way of, it's a way of saying that my entire estate belongs to the Lord. So Jonah's got to be thrilled, right? I mean, he comes to, he comes to, to, to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria and, and the Lord uses him to convert 120,000 people. He's got to be excited, right? So at the end of chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4, he goes outside of, of, of uh, Nineveh, and he goes and he sits outside the city on a hill. Think of it as the moral, moral equivalent of he's got himself a big tub of popcorn, and he's sitting there watching for the show to begin. Either God's going to change his mind, or the Ninevites are going to change their mind, and we're going to see fire coming from the sky, and this place is going to be leveled because that's what these people deserve. They don't deserve salvation. So God says, God says to Jonah in, in chapter four, he basically says, Let, let's have a conversation. Let's talk about this. And Jonah doesn't want to talk. He won't have a conversation with God. So God says, all right, we're going to have a conversation. So so he sends a hot wind. Who sends the hot wind in chapter 4? God sends the hot wind. And Jonah's, oh my gosh, I want to die. Don't think of it as Jonah's a, 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 a girly man. He is, it's hot. It's a hot wind coming off the desert, and he really wants, he'd rather die than endure this hot wind. But don't worry, because God sends a plant, and it grows abnormally fast and provides a shade over Jonah, and now Jonah's thrilled, and he can live again. But God sends the wind, God sends the wind, God sends the plant, provides the shade, and, and now God sends a worm. And overnight, the worm eats the plant and destroys the plant, and Jonah has no more shade, and oh, now he wants to die again. And so now, God's 
toying with Jonah, yeah. He's toying with Jonah, and he's saying, but we're going to have this conversation that you and I are meant to have. You care about the plant which you didn't raise and the worm which you didn't create, but you don't care about those 120,000 people. And this is where we now, we, we, get the, we get the real understanding of Jonah, and I'll paraphrase it for us. He, he basically says, I, I knew, God, you were going to do this. You provide your mercy to people willy-nilly, whoever you want, left and right. And I didn't want you to provide it to the Assyrians. Why? Jonah wants God's mercy for Israel. So what's Jonah? A good quality racist. He wants it for his race, not anyone else. Definitely not his enemies. He wants to choose who gets God, God's grace and mercy, not God. And, and we conclude the book with another literary tool. There's 66 books in the Bible, and there's only two of them that uh, conclude with a question. And that's another literary tool to show us that the question is not really meant for the character in the book. It's meant for the person reading it. So God asks this question of Jonah, and it goes unanswered. It's intended for us, the reader, to then solve, solve the riddle and answer the question. And, and, and God says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor. You did not make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And here's the question. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle, much wealth? So God says to Jonah, you, carry, you care about this stuff, your comfort, your, your, the plant, the shade, the worm which destroyed your plant and your shade, but you don't care about the salvation of the lost, of the people that you don't like. So the question is for us, what is it that we care about more than we care about the salvation of the lost? Reader of Jonah, God asks, you, it's not worms and plants and shade and hot winds for us, but what is it for us, our security, our fears, our concerns that we aren't enough? What is it that we place in front of the salvation of the lost? And, and if, if what it is that we place in front of the salvation of the lost is a concern that we don't bring sufficient tools that maybe if I, if I share the gospel with the guy in the grocery store in front of me, I'm, he might mock me. I might get embarrassed. Of someone I love, I just I don't know the gospel as well as Brandon and Todd do, so I'll just I'll, I'll let them share the gospel because I'm afraid that maybe my version of sharing the Bible poorly will prevent them from being saved. Or is it I, I just, I can't, I can't give up my comfort. I don't have enough education. I, I've got too much debt. I've got, I've got my kids to worry about. I've got my grandkids to, to worry about. I, I, 
I have all these things that maybe even in the Western world sound great. We, when my wife and I left to the mission field, um, we had a lot of folks look at us through, even Christians look at us through Western eyes. That what we were doing is we were sacrificing our future, sacrificing our daughter's education, sacrificing our marriage, sacrificing our homes and our 401ks to be obedient to the Lord. And, and if, if at any time I were to say, you know, I just decided it's going to be too hard on my marriage and my daughter for, for my wife and I and my daughter to move to a third world country, how many Christians from the West would have said, I see it, brother. That's your number one ministry is take care of your family. That's it, right? Because we've placed our lens of what success is in the West in front of, of, of what the Lord is. I won't put that on you. That's what, that's what my wife and I struggled with. Was that, well, we could do more by staying here and making good income and sending it to support other missionaries as opposed to going, by our, going for ourselves. We had, we had all, I had, I had a book of excuses, lots of great excuses to not go to the mission field, to not be obedient. But the reality is, like we saw in this book, is that in this book, when it comes to the salvation of 120,000 people and much cattle, that Jonah didn't want to go, but God controlled the wind and the storm and the lots and the fish and the message and the wind and the worm and the plant. And God controlled it all. God controls us. God controls the lost. God controls the salvation of the lost. I often think that if maybe the Lord used like the A-team of missionaries and pastors and evangelists, he'd be better off, right? You definitely, you need, you need a NASCAR driver and a Pulitzer Prize winner and a Heisman Trophy winner and, and someone that's written at least, you know, eight or nine uh, books on Old Testament theology and and good-looking people, and good orders. and But if God sent that A-team of missionaries and pastors and evangelists, we'd all step back and say, well, of course none of us got saved. Look at the team that sent. Oh, yeah, God sent them, but I mean, look at who went. But my background's political science. I worked in politics for 20 years before I went to the mission field. What's my qualification? My wife's at least a nurse. She's got some skills. But I, and, and on our team, on our mission team in Honduras, we also had a construction worker and a high school teacher, social worker, architect. And oh, by the way, we're all sinners. And so where we answer this question is where, where we look at it and we say, Oh, Lord, I'm not ready. You don't want me, but it's clear you're calling me to do whatever, right? I'm not capable. You clearly don't know me well enough, Lord. I, I'm not, I don't have what we need. But when we look, when we jettison that and we look at the book of Jonah and we say, salvation is of the Lord. And God controls all the circumstances that, 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 makes it happen he doesn't need me but for some really strange reason 
He wants me. He wants me to sacrifice. He wants me to, to, to love the lost like he loves the lost. And, and at that point, then, we, then we, we come into it and we say, Lord, I don't know what it is you're looking for in me, but I, I, sac- I give up everything. Please don't send me to someplace like Honduras or Equatorial Guinea or whatever, but I'll do whatever you want of me, Lord. At that point, I, I think that's the, big, that's the starting line, is where we're willing in our faith to say, it horrifies me, Lord, to turn everything over to you, which is really a statement for us. God already knows that, right? It's a statement for us saying we acknowledge everything comes from you, Lord, and everything is for you, Lord, and, and I'm willing to, to, to take that step to do whatever it is you want of me. And then maybe he will call you to the foreign mission field, or maybe he wants you to, to be active missionaries here. And, and I think a lot of us in the West, we say, well, I am, I'm a missionary here where I live right now. And that's good if we're, if we're acting like that. If we're evangelizing, we're sharing the gospel, and we're trying to spread the, spread the glory of Christ to the people who God has called us to interact with. So I close out with, with, the, with the, the concept of this book, focusing on chapter 2, verse 9, salvation is of the Lord. If salvation is of the Lord, it's an easy decision. He doesn't need you to get that next degree or pay off that next bill or or get that next phase in life. He's ready for you now. And and he's ready for you how you are. And you look in, you look throughout scripture, you look at the heroes of our faith, right? Moses was a murderer. David couldn't keep his hands off his neighbors. Paul was a persecutor of Christians. That's the A-team of our faith, right? Maybe God might be able to use me too. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we look at the book of Jonah, Lord, not as, um, not as uh, you utilizing uh, incomplete and sinful folks, Lord, but we look at the, the book of Jonah as you showing us you that we get to see your characteristics and we get to see your complete and utter control over the salvation of the lost. If salvation is of the Lord, it's not of us. Uh, we don't have to depend on us and you're not, you're not depending on us. All you ask uh, of us, Lord, is to be obedient and that's the only step. And Father, I pray whether it is, um, whether you want us to to love the lost in our community, to love the lost at work or school, to love the lost around the globe. Lord, you you make it clear to us and you help us to have obedient hearts, Lord. In your name we pray. We have heard of the salvation of the Lord preached.